Welcome to LifeQuest, a program that directs you to subjects and books that will make a difference in your life. A program that will make you think and strengthen your journey of faith in the 21st century. My name is Dwight Lanehoff. Today on LifeQuest, I'm talking with Pastor Chase Replogo, and he is the author of a book called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Pastor Chase, welcome to LifeQuest. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Why this book at this time? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think uh, most listeners probably understand that in the last few years, this idea of masculinity, the word itself, has become increasingly controversial. Uh, And the culture seems to be sort of stuck between these two views. One, that masculinity, traditional forms of it are toxic, need to be torn down and reconstructed. Mm -hmm. And then a kind of opposite reaction that says, no, you need to indulge with wild abandon those masculine instincts. And the thing that has really been suffering for so many men is a way forward. How do I just become a better man? How do I grow in character? And that's the thing that so rarely the, co- the culture never gets around to having the conversation on. You know, we point out problems in our culture today, as you say in page 23 of your book, and yet we're not finding a lot of answers that seem to be very specific and helpful. And you even suggest the church hasn't been doing a great job of that either. The way I describe it, I think what a lot of men are experiencing, I use the word in the book, malaise. In other words, there's a sense that something's not right, something is off, something's not what it should be, but it's hard to put your finger on, it's hard to diagnose, it's hard to know what to do about it. And so a lot of men are just beginning to disengage, um, avoid the controversy altogether. And you see that across all the statistics. Men are dropping out of work, dropping Mm -hmm. out of education, certainly the fatherhood epidemic that's plaguing our nation. Uh, Men are just sort of checking out. And that also plays out within our churches. Men tend uh, statistically to attend church less than women, to practice their faith privately, so Mm -hmm. whether in prayer or Bible reading less than women. And for a long time, the church has focused on what we think of as sort of the masculine warnings or masculine sins. Sometimes it's it's phrased as money, sex, and power. Uh, But too often we don't get around to helping men, and those are important recommendations, important reminders, but we don't get around to having a conversation with men about why those what are the motives, the desires, these impulses and instincts that work within you that can be used and in, into something beneficial, but also if overindulged and left immature, unrecognized, can actually lead men to destruction. There are a lot of self-help books in, in the bookstores, in the libraries, and that sort of thing. Your book is different. How specifically? I take Paul's advice to the young man Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter 4, really seriously. He gives him a lot of practical advice, but he comes down, he calls Timothy to make progress, let the progress be obvious to the people he's leading, and then he sums it up by saying, keep a close watch on your life mm-hmm. and on the teaching, and by this you'll save yourself and those who hear. Um, our culture gives a lot of attention to just the first one, keep a close watch on your life. Right. Uh, Paul doesn't say don't do that. He says you should be trying to understand what your instincts and motives are, why you're behaving the way that you are. But you need a kind of counterbalancing attention as well. And for Paul, that's this attention to the doctrine, the gospel that you've received. I think that's a really important pattern for men to learn. How do I pay close attention to my life and then pay close attention to what I have in Christ and how to apply that back to my life? And how do I pay close attention to the gospel in such a way that it's allowed to have the power and authority to, to question me and check my life and help clarify some of the things going on within me? So your traditional self-help book in that will help you pay closer attention to yourself, your life, mm-hmm. but it does through the tools of 
space through the resources of the How would you define masculinity? You're talking a lot about it. It's in the title of your book. Give a definition for us. Now, uh, I think masculinity is the raw material of being male, and not everybody fits into the same stereotypes of what masculinity looks like, but certainly we have by biology, by the fact we have been raised in a culture that has certain ideas around masculinity, Mm -hmm. by the fact that God in his providence deemed us male and female and assigned to us a male gender, that there are these traits or attributes, this raw material that come along with those realities. And in this case, that masculinity, I like thinking of it as a raw material because it raises the question of what do we do with it? What do we make of it? It isn't enough to just indulge it blindly. It isn't enough to, just to ignore it. At some point, we take responsibility for who we are and say, how do I mature that into a greater Christ-likeness, which I think of as manhood, a, a matured Christ-like manhood, is building that raw material towards Christ-likeness. All right. These five masculine instincts, you call them, I'd like you to go through them, and you give some uh, biblical uh, characters that seem to reflect that. Yeah, I'll give you a, sort of where they came from and a, a little bit of a quick overview for sure. each. Uh, I, I came across a while back Shakespeare's Stages of a Man. It's from a famous uh, monologue that begins, it'll be familiar lines, all the world's a stage, and right. each of us men and women mere players on it. Uh, He goes on to describe seven stages of a man's life, the first and last being birth and death. He tries to make the point that as we come into the world dependent on someone else's care, we tend to leave the world dependent on someone else's care. Shakespeare calls it the second childishness. Mm -hmm. But in the middle, he has these five instincts in which we get the stages of a man's life from a boy into what we might call the retirement years. I recognized really quickly these images that Shakespeare was describing in my own life and also in a lot of the men that I pastor. I'm mm-hmm. first and foremost a pastor, and I've got men in my congregation of all ages. And I could see how Shakespeare was capturing many of these stages, or what I call instincts, that was obvious within a man's life. And so I tried to give them a single word as a way of giving them language. Shakespeare uses images, and I'm trying to describe them in a word. And those instincts I describe are, are uh, beginning with sarcasm, mm-hmm. adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. And then pretty quick I started seeing those also in the men of the Bible and recognizing how you could see that instinct at work in a biblical story that helped you sort of get perspective on it in your own life. So with sarcasm, I connected the story of Cain, his uh, reluctance to mature and grow and understand the things of God. In adventure, I recognized the story of Samson, who's constantly leaving home and tradition and place in search of everything Philistine that he imagines will deliver on a meaningful life. For ambition, I connected it to the story of Moses, who really struggles in some really interesting ways across his whole life and ultimately is made to put down that great ambition, the promised land, and to die there on Mount Nebo looking at that thing that would go unfulfilled. What is this wrestling with ambition that Moses lives out? The fourth one is reputation. I turn to the story of David, who struggles uh, in ways getting it right and in ways getting it painfully wrong between the true integrity of his life and this public image, this reputation of being a king. How does he reconcile those two things in an honest way? And then the final one uh, for apathy, I turn to the story of Abraham, looking at Abraham is really an exemplar of faith, but when things do go wrong, it mm-hmm. tends to be his, his instinct to disengage and a kind of apathy that sets in. Uh, that creates much of the pain and tension within his home and the world around him, and the way God calls him back into sacrifice to free him from that instinct of apathy. So those five, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. You know, as you're going through them, uh, Pastor, 
I, I find myself a little uncomfortable because I see some of those things in my life, and I'm an old guy. I want to always remind people that these instincts are not necessarily sinful. Um, certainly, we wouldn't say we want to raise a generation of ambitionless men. Mm-hmm. Uh, reputation. I mean, uh, the, the New Testament itself encourages us to keep a good reputation. It's one of the qualifications of leadership. So it isn't that these five instincts are somehow wrong or, or, or sinful. The danger is if they remain an instinct. C.S. Lewis described an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. Uh-huh. In other words, we think that it's obvious and rational and common sense, and we thought it through, when really we haven't. If we indulge these instincts blindly, as if we've decided, when really we're sort of mastered by them instead of mastering them, that's when they have a tendency to lead us into destruction, yeah. into sin that we might not have imagined practicing. So the task is not how do you these instincts. The task is how do you recognize them and through faith mature them into something more useful, something better, a new instinct of faith where you actually are in control of those instincts instead of being controlled by them. And, and that is what the Church should be doing, correct? Yeah, and I think it's a really important conversation with men in particular right now. Men can imagine a version of themselves they wish they could be. Mm-hmm. I don't think most men wish they could be irresponsible and immature and checked out and disengaged. Many of them have that sense of disillusionment because they've tried and been unsuccessful. We've taken from them the past that previous generations of men had to mature into a better character. So the Church should be at the center of this conversation, as Paul was for the young man Timothy, saying, how do you keep a close watch on your life? How do you keep track and keep a close watch on what you have in Christ? And how do you bring those two together into progress, into character and virtue that can bear a greater responsibility and serve others better? Yeah, because this is the difference between the general self-awareness that we hear a lot about and, and gospel awareness, which you're talking about with Paul and Timothy illustrating that. Yeah, I actually think there's a risk to do both of those in isolation. There's okay. a risk that you get lost in your own attention for yourself, that everything becomes about you, and it's this sort of endless search for your identity and meaning, constantly looking inward, 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 and there's nothing there to challenge you or to really push you into something bigger than yourself. But there's also a kind of danger where you let your life turn into just abstract theological definitions, and you're constantly learning information, but it's never getting pressed and worked into the actual parts of your life. You can actually sort of uh, uh, bifurcate your life and, and know all these things about God, but then not live those things at your depth. So I think Paul was really wise in recognizing that the way you make progress, the way you serve others well, is doing both of these things, really knowing what motivates you, and really knowing what you have in Christ and bringing those two things together. In the middle of your book, you talk about uh, this uh, Eric Little, and uh, it was a movie about him and all this stuff and how he uh, wouldn't uh, violate uh, his Sabbath. And yet when he was a missionary, he was willing to move in a different direction. Would, Would you explain that? Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories from the book. It's in the chapter on ambition. And for each of the instincts, I suggest a practice by which you could check that instinct and keep it in its proper place. And for those who really, their first impulse and instinct is this vision, this thing they want to accomplish, this great work, the ambition of their life, I suggest a practice of Sabbath as an intentional check on that ambition. And it's unfortunate in our world, Sabbath also often gets defined as 
if I take one day off a week, I'll be more productive and get more done on the other six. That's not really the goal of Sabbath. Um, I like to say to people, what would it mean if you accepted that you would only accomplish six-sevenths of what you were capable of achieving in life? Mm -hmm. Can there be an intentional kind of check on your ambition? That's what the Sabbath was for Eric Little. He refused to run on Sundays, even when it meant a disqualification from a race in the Paris Olympics that he was favored to win. He simply would not run on a Sunday. But you're right, there's a story later on in his life serving as a missionary that uh, a group of imprisoned kids, he was in an internment camp during the war, a group of kids came to him, wanted him to referee the game. He said, no, it's a Sabbath, it violates my principles. Well, apparently their game broke out into a fight. They came back to him the next week, we really need somebody, (laughs) and he decides to do it, to break this, this principle that would keep him from even competing in the Olympics. Well, why? I think he understood that that Sabbath wasn't just a kind of dogmatic rule, it wasn't pharisaical. He had put that into his life to check his own ambitions. And mm-hmm. at times when he needed that check, he was happy to have it. At other times he recognized there were higher priorities. It was a tool he was using internally for keeping his ambition for running and achieving and gold medals in its proper place. He would be the master of it, not it the master of him. And that, that's a great illustration about the, the balance in our, in our lives of faith. Uh, that we're not doing things just because it says so somewhere or we were raised that way. But in fact, what would Jesus do? And he he shocked all kinds of people with the illustrations you just gave. Yeah, it comes back to that idea, doesn't it, of knowing yourself and knowing what you have in Christ, the gospel, that I think he knew himself well enough to know, Eric Little, yeah. that he needed some sort of intentional practice or else this desire to compete and win could take too much from him, could drive him too far. And so he put that that practice in place as a way of limiting what he was able to achieve intentionally, to leave room for God. So yeah, I think he demonstrates really well this idea that Paul's speaking to Timothy, knowing yourself, but also knowing what you have in Christ, and keeping those two things at work at the same time. Towards the end of the book, you have a section, you say, you know, sometimes there's nothing left but to laugh. What do you mean by that? This comes from uh, Abraham's story of apathy, and some interesting ideas within the passage itself, but also within research. There's some research that suggests that as we age, we laugh less. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also research that as we age, we tend to have less friends, disengage from uh, social relationships. Of course, in the Abraham story, the big tension is this desire for a son, an heir, and the fact that they're pushing 100 and it's still not been fulfilled. When Abraham receives word that they will still have this promised heir, he laughs, is his response. Isaac, who is eventually born, his name is in fact laughter. And so part of what the chapter on apathy is, is a question about our expectations, a question about the complexity of waiting by faith to receive those things, and the reality that God often takes things that we laugh at, we imagine are ridiculous or absurd, and turns them into a different kind of laughter, a laughter of joy. In so many ways, Abraham's story is about him wrestling to hold on to faith, and God taking that thing and giving it to him in such a way that it transforms the laughter. It re-engages him in the faith of believing and pressing on and trusting. Um, at the center of that Abraham story is this idea of laughter, and I think it's a helpful way of us saying, how do we keep ourselves by faith engaged in all of the complexities of life? Yeah. In chapter 9, it's titled, Nothing Left to Prove. When we're in the middle part of our life, we have all these goals, and we want to accomplish this for our family, for ourselves, for our self-worth, all that sort of thing. 
but nothing left to prove is uh, kind of a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I close the book that way, loving one of Jesus' parables about the, the landowner who goes out and finds a barren fig tree. It says he had been waiting three years for it to bear figs. It still hadn't, so he commands the servant, cut it down. Why should it take up room? And the servant says to him, well, let me spread a little more manure around the trunk, and let's give it another year. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the parable. The truth is, when it comes to things like character, when it comes to things like manhood, Christ-likeness, cultivating masculinity into something that's actually mature and beneficial, that's not an overnight project. It's not a, you know, I desire to do it, I've made a plan, and 30 days later it's in place. This is a lifelong calling of following Jesus. And it's too often that when we talk about manhood, it does turn into attempts to prove it, to prove it to ourselves, yeah. to prove it to culture, the world around us. What I want to encourage men to do is to set themselves on a path, recognizing that these stages and instincts change and evolve over a lifetime. We're never quite done with this work. So what does it look like to put in place some practices that help us follow Christ, not just for this next phase, this next project we undertake, but across our whole life, following Christ and becoming more like Christ, and in the end discovering that we really don't prove it. We simply follow and watch what he does, spreads the manure, waits for that fruit to, to, to bear out on the limbs, and we receive that identity as a man as much as we do prove it. The book is The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man by Chase Replogo. And where can our listeners get a copy of the book? Uh, sure. The book is available anywhere that you buy books. Amazon, of course, Lifeway, Christian Books, uh, Walmart and Target. Um, and also the website, the5masculineinstincts.com. It has an assessment on there. If you're interested in the topic or maybe wanting some more information, there's a short 25-question assessment that can mm-hmm. help you sort of figure out maybe which of these instincts is most prominent in your life right now, as well as the other resources. It's a great place to go. Pastor, thanks so much for being with us on LifeQuest. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank, uh, thanks again for a great conversation and uh, the opportunity to do it. Thanks for listening to LifeQuest today. If you have questions or comments, you may send them to lifequest at lifetalk.net. My name is Dwight Lanehoff. This program comes to you from studios in the Meadowglade Church, Battleground, Washington.